Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're left off last week at verse 9, and so we'll pick back up and read a few verses. Our text this morning is Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. This text that we'll read this morning has long captivated me. I think probably about 30 years ago in March of 1989 is when I first heard the gospel and was converted through the witness of my older brother and my sister-in-law, um, who actually will be here with us in a couple weeks. And so all the stories that I've been telling about my brother, you'll get to um, meet him. He is a real person. He exists. <laughs> um, and this text has long captivated me. Verses 9 through 21 is just a picture of what the Christian life should look like. And this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm entitling this sermon, The Gospel-Shaped Life. And, and we use this word gospel a lot in our context. We In fact, we use this word so much that if we don't, at times, just remind ourselves of what it means, we can be careful to just assume it and then actually misunderstand it. This word gospel is a word that means literally the good news, and this is the message of Romans up to this point, Romans 1 through chapter 11, the good news of what God has done to rescue sinners, which is where we all start, all of us. To rescue sinners from separation from him, which is eternal separation because of our sin. And he does this through the sacrifice of God the Son in the flesh to come and live and to be like us. And where we have all failed in sin, Jesus satisfies, obeys completely, perfectly the requirements of God's holy law and then lays down that life on the cross to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for all of those that would trust in him by faith and be made new and live a life of obedience to him so that through our lives he might bring glory to his name. That's the good news of the gospel. And because of this gospel, because we were dead and God has made us alive, we are to give ourselves wholly to God. He hasn't just saved us, he created us and he owns us. And we do this as we read in our text A couple weeks ago, in the beginning of Romans chapter 12, by being transformed by the renewal of our minds, by offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God. But here's the question that I think is the burden of the rest of chapter 12. What kind of life does this renewed mind produce? And I think the answer is found in the remainder of Romans chapter 12. So we're going to spend two weeks going through the balance of this chapter this morning. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13 and this gospel-shaped life. So let me read the text, and then we're going to work our way through it. Paul writes this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Haven't we seen a beautiful example of that this morning, Pastor Miguel? 
Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we look at this text in these few moments, Lord, help us. Help us to see a picture for some time now. Two years we've been working through Romans and have seen this beautiful picture of how you and you alone save us. We are saved by grace alone, not by our own efforts, not by our own righteousness, because our righteousness is as filthy rags. But we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And this faith that we exercise to believe in Jesus is even a gift. It's not something that we bring to the table. It's something that we must be given by you, by your grace. So we're saved by grace alone and faith alone, through Christ alone, in his life, death, and resurrection, and victory over sin, death, and the grave. Lord, as we have dwelt on this gospel, may, may our theology, may our doctrine of how you have saved us not just terminate there, but may it take us somewhere to this beautiful picture of, of the Christian gospel-shaped life that you give us here in, this, in these verses. Lord, help us now to think deeply about the Christian life. Make us more like Jesus as a result of our time together in your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just work through this text here. This text is so punchy and so full of power that I thought it would be helpful for us just to read back through it and just to meditate for a moment on some of these key words that we see in verses 9 through 13. So look again at verse 9. Paul says, as a result of the gospel, as a result of everything that he said up to this point, now let love be genuine. This word genuine, in maybe in a, 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 a version of the Bible that you might be reading from, says without hypocrisy. It, another way of thinking about this word genuine is that, that we, Paul is calling us to be inexperienced in the art of acting. Now think about that in the context of just church culture, about how often sometimes it's pretense, it's sort of your church face, and you know, you're just putting on kind of a show, you, know, you, you have a difficult time getting the kids ready maybe, you're arguing with your spouse, and you drive up, and it's just like, it's like World War III until you pull into that parking lot, and all of a sudden it's just, hey, how are you? Oh, come on, don't act, don't act, yes, all, we've all been there, right, amen? All right. Just wondering what type of crowd I'm dealing with here this morning. Paul says, come on, let, let it be without hypocrisy. And the reason he needs to exhort us that way is because we all know that we all struggle with genuineness, sincerity. And what does this genuine love look like? He gives two qualifiers there in, in verse 9. He says, abhor what is evil, hate, detest, shudder at evil things. Recoil. The, 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 the sense here is that we would recoil. We would be shocked by evil things. And, and friends, let's just admit this is a particular challenge for us in our culture because of the things that we allow to be put in front of us. It, it has a kind of desensitizing effect on us, does it not? And so we're, we're probably maybe more than any other church culture in the history of the church we have difficulty with, with, with shuddering, with recoiling in horror at evil things. He says then, in a positive way, not only to recoil from evil, but to hold fast, to cling to what is good. There's a sense here that we should be glued, we should cleave. In fact, the, the same word here for hold fast is, is the word in the New Testament that is used to describe 
by Jesus in the Gospels, marriage between a, a man and a woman. In Matthew 19, I think, in fact, Jesus says that, that a man should hold fast. He should cleave to his wife, that there should be a joining here, a union, a, a gluing together, a oneness. So if we were to summarize verse 9, we might, we might say in kind of in our language, we might say that love is to not play games, no pretending. It should shudder at evil and it should marry itself to good. Married to good. And then in verse 10 he says, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. We're all familiar with this word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And if you've ever been to a football game or a sporting event in Philadelphia and you're a visiting team, you might question whether or not that city is aptly named. But that word means brotherly love, affection between family. Jesus calls us to, to love one another. And remember the context here for this text is, is not just sort of floating around nebulously as general principles for the Christian life, but the context is the local church, us together. This is what Jesus says. In the Gospels in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is rooted, this brotherly affection that Paul is calling us to, as in we see it standing on top of what Jesus is saying here in the Gospels, is rooted in Jesus' love for us. And so because Jesus has loved us as a brother, because he has borne our punishment and removed the Father's wrath from his children and brought us into his family, because of the Gospel, not just as a general sort of ethic for good society, but rooted and grounded in, Christ as our big brother dying and loving us because he's done that for you, because he's done that for me if we're believers in Jesus. We're free. In fact, we're called and we're commanded to love each other in, in this way. And again, the context is, I think, of course, all people, we should love all people, but the, but the clear setting for living this out is our life together as a church. Listen to what Paul says in another letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So how do we love each other? We, we bear, and, and note the spelling there of bear, it's, it's B-E-A-R, in other words, A-R, in other words, we, we, we shoulder each other's burdens, not, this is a strange little wordplay here in English, not bear, B-A-R-E, like expose each other, they that's, that's a difference there, isn't it? We are to bear, we're to shoulder one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So, so listen to this. Look at, look at how Christ puts us together, how Paul puts us together in the Christian life. In order to fulfill the law of Christ, which I think is a picture of the gospel, what is the law of Christ? I think in, in Paul's letters, that's a kind of shorthand of the gospel itself, how Christ has died for us. He's fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's holiness, and he has removed the wrath and the punishment that should have been ours because of the law. 
and bore the burden for us, removed it. Isaiah says in chapter 53 that he bore our burden, he bore our sins. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of God's holiness against us that we could never fulfill and then gives us his Holy Spirit whereby we can live for him. That's the law of Christ, friends, that's the gospel. And so when, listen to this, when we act like Christ in that way towards each other, we're actually fulfilling the display of the gospel. So, so, implicit in this, think about this with me for just a second, is a kind of sincerity and authenticity that must be present in the people of God. Because if we're not bearing each other's burdens, it would be impossible for us to fulfill the law of Christ. And so if we all just kind of come in here for a Sunday morning fix, and we all have our little happy church faces on, and we never get real with each other, then we can actually never fulfill the law of Christ. So let's help each other be good Christians by giving each other each other's junk. That's what this text is saying. Be real with each other. Be a burden on one another. Be a burden on one another. Oh, no, I I wouldn't share that. No, no, no. Help somebody else be a follower of Jesus by bearing their burdens and letting them bear yours. Look, verse 2 of Galatians 6 is a kind of radical, it's a radical call to the Christian life that, man, come on, let's just admit we struggle with this, don't we? Don't we? All right, two or three of us, all right. (laughs) He continues on in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. This word outdo is is, is really interesting. It's, It's almost, it has a kind of beautiful, selfless, competitiveness here. Um, my dad is, um, my, my family and I would always joke that anytime we were going on a road trip anywhere and we were in multiple cars, uh, my dad always had to be the lead car. He was just, he was going to show us the way. And, um, you know, God forbid that me or my brother sort of get out in front of him on the interstate there going to San Diego or whatever because he would, I mean, who cares? California Highway Patrol, nobody will stop my dad from being the lead dog in the caravan. <laughs> and I could just picture my mom sitting in the passenger seat there just, just kind of like bracing, Joe, Joe, Joe. And my dad saying, relax, Linda, relax. But there's this sense here in this word that we should, we should go before one another. We should we should, in a strange way, try and best each other, get in front of each other in showing honor to one another. Isn't that a a beautiful picture of what life and community should be like? That we should be kind of stumbling over one another, not to prop ourselves up, but to lower ourselves and give honor to one another. That's just a beautiful picture. Verse 11, he continues, he says, do not be slothful in zeal. And I think the reason verse 11 is right after 10 is because outdoing one another to show honor to one another can get tiring, can it not? Serving the Lord in the context of community, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens can make you tired. And he encourages here, 
He encourages us here to not get tired. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, literally here, a, 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 a kind of literal translation of this word. It's so beautiful. It's, 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 it's got this sense that boil. Let your spirit boil or catch on fire for the sake of serving the Lord. And serving the Lord is such a broad category. Let's, let's resist the temptation to make, to make serving the Lord just very narrow to like ways that we might serve the Lord in like gathered public worship. There's a, there's a broadness to this, serving the Lord in, in everything that we do. Listen to these, these encouragements in, in the scriptures in the New Testament about serving one another in, in broad, everyday ways. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And listen to verse 17. And whatever, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So think less about stage ways that you might serve the God, serve God, or stage ways that you might, or upfront ways that you might serve the church. But think about just the whatevers, the whatevers of life that we would serve God. Listen to what Paul says a, little, a few verses later in Colossians 3, again, verse 22. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So I want to broaden this, and I want us to broaden this. Just think about ways. I mean, if you're serving in tangible ways in, in this church, or you're just serving people by being an encouragement to them, by, by praying for somebody. In fact, before you leave this room today, hunt somebody down that you know might be led, that, you, that the Holy Spirit might be leading you to, to just offer a word of encouragement to say, hey, how are you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? And that is a kind of whatever where you are serving the Lord, where you're not slothful in zeal, but you're fervent in spirit, and you're letting yourself be used to show honor and bear one another's burdens. You see how all of this fits together. is this beautiful web of gospel love in the local church. And then verse 12, he says, and as, as Pastor Miguel was speaking, I thought this is just, he, he's a picture, and his ministry has been a picture of verse 12. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. The Christian life is always looking forward to the future. And then it says, be patient in tribulation. I love how, how the Bible just admits that life is full of trouble. And this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus is, he promises us that, that in this world we will have trouble. We've read in Romans already, in Romans 8, how Paul says that this, this trouble that we're having is preparing for us for the glory of heaven. And in this looking forward and in this tribulation that we're experiencing, we should be constant in prayer. We, we need, this is just a picture of the dependence of the Christian, that we need God to help us live in this way. Just a couple Wednesday nights ago, we're starting this new midweek fellowship uh, emphasis on prayer. And if you haven't been, um, our last two Wednesday nights have just been beautiful. Just a time of, of, of looking at God's word for a few minutes, but spending the balance of our time 
doing something radical and revolutionary for much of the American church, praying. And it's been so sweet to pray for one another, to to lift up needs, to pray specifically for missionaries this past Wednesday, to to pray for the work of God among us. We we are a people that are dependent on God to to move and to see how God invites us into this. We've been dwelling on the utter and exhaustive sovereignty of God, but Paul's doctrine of the sovereignty of God does not impede his prayers. It fuels his prayers. The way that God brings about his sovereign will and providence for all things is through the means of his people praying and obeying him. And this is a picture of the gospel shaped life that we see. And finally, in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show them, seek to show hospitality. We are to contribute, we're to share, we're to, we're to take on one another's burdens. There's, there's just a picture, a practical picture of what bearing one another's burdens look like. And then this word at the end of verse 13 is very interesting, hospitality. We should seek, we should be on the lookout for ways that we can be hospitable. But we, we've sort of dumbed down this word hospitality in our, in our English language. Hospitality, biblically, in the original language of the New Testament, is, is a combination of two words. And those two words are love and stranger. And so, in a way, kind of most literally, hospitality is not merely opening your home to people that are just like you or being a good cook or, you know, having a... I mean, HGTV has messed up our ability to be hospitable, hasn't it? Because none of us can decorate like Joanna Gaines. And none of us can cook like, you know, the cooking shows. And so we think that hospitality is basically kind of on a subconscious level, oftentimes just showing off how organized and good you are at interior decorating, which is actually the reverse of outdoing one another to show honor. You're sort of outdoing everybody else to show yourself honor in a kind of sort of subversive sort of way. And hospitality isn't having the most awesome stuff. It is seeking to love strangers, people not like you. That's that's what it is. The importance of hospitality in the Old Testament and first century culture is just rampant throughout the scriptures. The world was a dangerous and harsh place. People would travel from place to place and they would be very vulnerable if they didn't have a kind soul to take them in. That's why the Old Testament is full of exhortations to consider and care for the sojourner, the foreigner, the stranger. And in fact, one of the things that God commands Israel to do is to care for the sojourner because, and this is a kind of picture, this is a shadow of the mission of the church in the New Testament. When God is commanding Israel as a people in the law to care for the stranger and the sojourner, what he's doing is actually he's, he's writing into the law a kind of evangelistic missional life in the life of Israel by saying that I'm going to bless Israel so that through Israel I can bless all the peoples of the world. That's the promise that he makes to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, he says, I'm gonna, Abraham, I'm going to make you a family 
I'm going to make this family a nation, and through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. So God doesn't, he doesn't save a nation, he doesn't save a church merely for the sake, but so that through those people, they would be a kind of city set on a hill, so that through them, they would be a blessing to all the nations. And listen to this, God writes into his Old Testament law an evangelistic strategy for the nation of Israel to love the sojourner, so that they would be brought into the house so that the sojourner wouldn't just get a meal and be impressed with your decorating, but so that they would see the beauty of the gospel-shaped life in the people of God. And that's, that's what's going on here. Show hospitality. Oh, I, I mean, I don't mean to brag too much on Pastor Miguel, but he's such a humble guy, he, he, like he's mature enough to hear it. When I was at his house, his house is just like a, it's like a hospital. It's like a picture of hospitality. People were just coming and going, speaking to him. There's always something on the stove in the kitchen. There's always coffee. And let me tell you something about Cuban coffee. Mm, oh, man. The only problem with Cuban coffee is that they give it to you in these little, these little, like little tiny little espresso glasses. And I want to say, Miguel, like, fill up like a big cup of that stuff. And let me, because you just, I, just let me hit that thing all at once rather than going back to the kitchen 10 times for little cafecitas. But his house is just open. And it was just a beautiful picture of, of loving anybody. You're here. This is a safe place for you to come. Hospitality doesn't necessarily need to take place in our homes. It can take place around a lunch table or a restaurant. It can, it can take place even in the way we interact with one another, that you're communicating to somebody that doesn't look like they, they wonder whether or not they fit with the people of God. And we posture ourselves in a way, in a spirit, because God loved us when we were strangers, we can love strangers with the love of Christ. That's the picture here. All right, let's end with this. Three reflections briefly, quickly, on the gospel-shaped life. Number one, I want us to see that it's it's an all-encompassing life. It's an all-encompassing life. L love what is good. Love what is genuine. Cling to what is good. Abhor, abhor what is evil. It's all his. We're, we're to be living sacrifices. There's, there's no place. It's not, a, it's not a Sunday morning in the South. It's not a nominal Christian life. It's not a, it's not a compartmentalized life. It's, a, it's an all-encompassing life. We were dead. He made us alive. He owns us. We are to give ourselves as living sacrifices. And all of us struggle with us, with that. Nobody does that perfectly. And so we need one another. We need one another. I'm getting ahead of myself. But the point is, is that the gospel-shaped life is an all-encompassing life. Are there parts of your life that you've sealed off from the lordship of Christ? That's the question for somebody in this room today. Repent of that, turn from that, abhor, abhor what is evil, and marry, fasten, glue yourself to what is good. Second reflection on the gospel-shaped life is it's a, it's a family life. It's a family life, and by family, I don't mean that the church or the gospel-shaped life is merely a place to raise a biological family. Certainly it is, and praise God for that. But it's actually something much better than that. It's a place to be a spiritual family. We, we can actually, I think, make an idol 
out of biological families in the body of Christ. Praise God for moms and dads and children that grow up in the church. But the goal of the gospel is not for us to be merely biological family units that gather together as a church, but for us to be a spiritual family with people who don't have biological families or who are separated from them, widows, singles, orphans, lonely, for all of us to find family. And the gospel puts us into that. It's not merely individual religious development. It's a family. God puts us into this. We're to live together in this way. The gospel makes us. It shapes us into a family. And it's not a family that that we choose. It's a family of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's people not like us. A gospel-preaching church should attract people that are not necessarily like each other because that becomes more compelling to the world around it. If all of us have the same sort of demographic and interests, then then the world is not impressed by that. That's all. Those people would have been together anyway, even without the gospel. But when Jesus is supreme and the ruler and the king, of a group of people, what he does is he attracts people from all different walks of life, and when they come together, when the world looks at that type of community, that becomes far more compelling because they realize that what has brought those people together is Christ, not their subculture. The gospel makes us a family. Listen to what J.I. Packer says in his beautiful, wonderful book called Knowing God. He says, about this family-making aspect of the gospel, which is adoption. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Listen to this. This is your story for all of you if you're a Christian. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. (laughs) Isn't that good? That's your story. Whether you became a Christian at four years old or whether you trusted in Christ at 40, you were a traitor and you were forgiven, you were brought in for supper, and you were given a family name. Now friends, this is, this is true if you're trusting in Jesus. Listen to me here. I want to I I speak to people that, that, um, that may be struggling right now. This is true whether or not you are experiencing this sort of in an experiential sense right now or not. You are part of the family of God You're not just, this is glorious, you're not just justified, it's not just that your sins are forgiven, not only have you been acquitted, but you've been brought in, you've been made a child of God, and that is true regardless of whether or not the church and the other Christians around you are making you feel like that. That is true. And in fact, the Bible ends with a picture of a family meal. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a marriage meal. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. At the end of Revelation, the end of all things is pictured. And really, the end of all things is the kind of the beginning of all things. The end and the beginning is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a family meal. It's a meal where we're around the table. That's what all of this is, is pointing to. But here's the deal. Because of residue of sin because no church is what it should be. We often don't feel like that 
in church culture. Some of you may feel on the outskirts. Some of you may feel like you can't fit in. Friends, let's be a church that has our head on a swivel for people who are on the outside because if you're trusting in Christ, you are not just justified. You're adopted. You're part of the family. And part of our life together as a church should be to struggle and to strain to pull up every chair around the table so that they can trust and feel the glory of what it means to be part of the family of God. So I, I think kind of church life together. You ever been at a big table? Maybe like Thanksgiving at grandma's house and there's just like a lot of chairs around the table and you don't, you don't want anybody to sort of be sitting in the back row, you know? And so you're like, oh, come, what? you're scooting over. Well, come, no, come on, come on, come on, man. Get in this bad boy. The turkey's almost gone. Come on. And that, that's what life together, that we're, we're kind of looking around to see anybody that's part of the family, but it's not quite at the table yet. That's the Christian life that, that Paul is pointing us to here. And then finally, uh, just a, a third reflection, and finally, it's, it's the gospel-shaped life is an evangelistic life. It's, it's, a, it's a life, you may not think of yourself as an evangelist, um, I've actually always thought of myself as that because that's actually my last name. <laughs> you know, funny story, uh, um, I, 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 uh, I used to be ashamed of my last name because kids would make fun of me um, in, a, in a joking way. Like, oh, Brad the, Brad the evangelist or the evangelista. And, um, and the Lord actually was, I think, using it to show me what my future would be, but we're all, we're all evangelists, aren't we? The, the Christian life is a missional life. It's an evangelistic life. And how, how, are we, how are we evangelists? How are we evangelistic? As we rejoice in hope, as we're patient in tribulation, as we're constant in prayer, as we serve the Lord in practical ways, as we, as we contribute to the needs of our brothers and sisters around us, and as we open our hearts to the love of strangers, you may not be preaching the gospel with a megaphone on a street corner. You may not be sharing the gospel in a sermon. You may never teach a class formally in front, in front of other Christians. You may never be at a crusade. You may never necessarily sit down with somebody one-on-one -on -one and witness with them in a kind of classical sense, although that would be a wonderful thing for every Christian to be able to do. But as you live in this, this gospel-shaped way, your life becomes, a, our lives become a kind of display to an onlooking world. It's a kind of aroma that God uses to draw people to consider and taste and see in Christ. And that's, that's what Paul is calling us to here. To, to live in such a way in a broken world that communicates to this world that it's not our home. That Jesus is our king that we're part of a family, and we love ourselves. We love others more than we love ourselves. That's the evangelistic life that all of us are called to live. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we consider this text, this beautiful picture of the Christian life, I thank you, Lord, for so many examples of this gospel-shaped life that I see in the life of this church. Lord, I, as I thought through this text this week, just people in this room were 
just popping up in my mind of beautiful pictures of this. Pastor Miguel and his family and his church in Cuba is a beautiful picture of this, of this paragraph in Romans 12. But Lord, we want more. We want to be more like this. Lord, we want more of this in our lives. I want more of this in my life because everything that we've been looking at in Romans up to this point is true. It's true and it's forever and it's clear that Sin has separated this world from you, and the only way that a man or woman or child can be reconciled is by trusting in Christ, by believing that his sacrifice and his resurrection is what makes a man, trusting in that is what makes a person right with you. And the way that people hear about that and are exposed to that gospel is through the life of the local church and the ministry of the gospel in the people of God. So, Lord, what's it, what hangs in the balance here is eternity, is your mission, is souls, is people in Columbus and people in Cuba and people that we interact with. God, give us this picture and make it our great joy to live together in this way. Lord, fan more of this into flame in our life. And I pray by your Holy Spirit that you might speak to the believers in this room and let this, this paragraph from Romans 12 not just fall off of our backs, but by your Holy Spirit convict us And before we leave this room today, Lord. May we act in obedience on something that you are calling us to do. And Lord, for my friends that are in this room that don't know you, Lord, would you, would you give them a picture? By, just by our time together, would it be a kind of aroma whereby they can see and sense and be drawn to Jesus to realize that they are separate from a holy God. They're separated from you. And their only hope is to trust in Jesus. Dear friend, if that's you this morning, turn from trusting in yourself. Put your hope in Jesus. Don't leave this room today without speaking to somebody that you know to be a Christian about what it means to trust in Jesus. Or do that. Give, that, give eyes to see for any of my friends in this room who don't know you. And make us more gospel-shaped in this room, in this church. In Jesus' name I pray.